Thank you, David and Sarah. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I, I've not been up here for about seven months, and there's new people in the church, so you might not. My name's Toby Nichols, as Tom introduced me. Uh, I've been worshipping here for about 11 years with my family, my wife and two children, and uh, this is not my full-time job. I'm not, I've got a far higher calling than this. Uh, the, the chuckles are because people know that I spend most of my life at about 33,000 feet flying around in aeroplanes with BA. So that's a little bit about me. Let's uh, pray before we get stuck into this passage about Thomas. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that this encounter that Thomas had with Jesus is recorded for us. And we ask uh, that, Lord, this morning as I unpack it, that by your spirit you would come and you would speak, that you would give us open hearts and open minds, ears that listen and eyes that might see. And that, Father, this morning you would help us to be honest and real with you. And that through what we look at, that we might be changed, that you might challenge us, and that you might be glorified in our lives. Amen. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There was a man who was sent from God. His name was John. We all know him as John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. And though he himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light, the light that gives light to every man, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the, the, world, though the, he, the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. We have the word became flesh and he made his home among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. There's a man I want to introduce you to. His name is Jesus. Let's look at what he does. Watch him carefully. Let's listen to his words. See what he says. Pay careful attention to this man. If you don't know it, that's essentially the beginning of John's gospel. John then goes on for 21 chapters of carefully selecting the life events, the claims of Jesus, the things that he does, the miracles that he performs, and he does that to one end. And that goal, that aim, is given just after the bit that David read today. It's in verse 30 and 31 of chapter 20 of John's Gospel. And I'm going to rephrase it ever so slightly, because from Greek scholars who are far wiser than I, this is what they think is a better way of expressing what John was trying to say. And this is John's aim in writing his Gospel. He says that there are many other miraculous signs that Jesus performed before his disciples, that these are not recorded in this book. But these ones are written so that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, I don't share that with you just to prove that I can memorize a bit of scripture because I want you to understand that the journey Thomas goes on today is the same journey that John wants to take us on through his book and the same journey that we do in life. And that is to discover that Jesus is alive, to believe in that and by believing in that to have life, not just kind of a human fleshy life uh, as we have it now, but something more than that, something as God intended it. Life in all of its fullness. That's what Jesus promised us. And not just life that is life now, but life that is life forever. And why I tell you that is because it's not just life, it's life with purpose. That's my message to you this morning, is that the life that Jesus has achieved for us through his death and resurrection is life with purpose. And so we come to the story of Thomas, and that's the context in which John is writing. Now, we don't know much about Thomas at all. We only really encounter him in John's gospel. And we don't know where he came from, what he did before Jesus called him. We don't know who his parents are. Um, He's called, Thomas called Didymus. Didymus means twin, but we don't even know who his brother or sister was. We know nothing about him except what we find in John's gospel, except that we know he's like the other disciples, a young man, late teenage years, early 20s, we often forget that about the disciples, don't we? They were young guys. And that we know from John's gospel that when Jesus was heading back to Bethany towards Jerusalem uh, to go and raise Lazarus from the dead, it was Thomas who understood that they were going into danger. And it was Thomas who piped up and said, come on guys, let's go with him. Even if that means going to our death, we'll go with Jesus. I also know, not just from today's reading, but from another bit in John's Gospel, that Thomas is a man who speaks his mind. Uh, Because when Jesus was talking about going back to the Father and that the disciples would know how to get there, it was Thomas who said, but um, hold on a minute, Jesus, Uh, don't even know where you're going. How can I know how to get there? That's what we know about Thomas. And so I want you, uh, just for... A moment to put yourself in his shoes today. The reading that we have today actually takes place today. The same, this is the same calendar day that this story takes place in the Bible. The first Sunday after Resurrection Day, after Easter, um, this is when Thomas has his encounter with Jesus. And just bear with me for a moment. This is Thomas. So last Thursday, I had dinner with Jesus and the other guys. It was amazing. After that, we went out to the garden. Jesus wanted to pray. And it was there that they came and took him. They took Jesus, the religious leaders. They took him away from us. And the next day was like a whirlwind because he had this trial that didn't make any sense. And before we knew it, we were standing at the back of a crowd. And there was Jesus on Calvary's hill, hanging on a cross. And we watched him die. Jesus Jesus died. The Jesus I've spent three years of my life with. The Jesus that I thought was the one who was going to rescue us and redeem his people and save us. He's dead. Did, I, did we get it wrong? Did, did I get it wrong? Did I get him wrong? And then to top it all off, last Sunday, the women went to embalm his body, but it wasn't there. It was missing. And they said he appeared to them. They said that Jesus was alive. And then he appeared to Simon Peter. Uh, There's no record of that in the scriptures, just references to it. And then he appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they legged it back to Jerusalem. And then he appeared to the people who were gathered in that room behind a locked door. And he showed himself to them. I missed it. I 
wasn't there. Oh, I missed it. I missed it. Is it real? I don't know. How do they know he's not a ghost? How do they know it's not an angelic visitation? How do they know it's not just some imagination picture in their mind? How do they know it was him? I want to believe. They're so excited, the guys. They're so passionate. But I missed it. I want to believe, but I need to see. I need to see with my own eyes. If I can touch him, if I can put my finger where the hole was, if I can put my hand in his side, then, then, then I'll believe. If I see it, I'll believe. How would you have felt? Have you ever missed something because you were somewhere else? It sucks. (laughs) Poor Thomas. He had a whole week of that, of not knowing. Of, But you know what's amazing about Thomas is that he doesn't run and hide. He doesn't pretend he has no doubts. He's honest about them. He has them, and he's honest about them. And he doesn't leave the guys, the disciples. He stays with them. He stays in community. But something amazing is going to happen. Because tonight, tonight, Thomas is going to be there. They're going to be gathered behind that locked door, Why is it locked? Probably because they're scared that the authorities are going to come and do to them what they did to Jesus. But there they are, and Jesus comes. Jesus comes, and he stands in their presence, in the midst of their fear of the world around them. What does he say? Peace be with you. Isn't that just like him? In the midst of the storm, in the midst of our trials and our difficulties, he brings peace. May you know his peace this morning. Peace be with you. And and is what Jesus does next a a rebuke of Thomas? We're not sure. In Mark's gospel, uh, it says that Jesus rebukes some of them for not believing the eyewitness testimony of the other disciples. We don't know whether that was last Sunday night or whether it's this Sunday night. Um, But when I look at Jesus' actions and what he does, it doesn't seem like this is a rebuke, at least not a harsh one of Thomas. Because the first thing that Jesus does when he turns up in that room, because his visit is for Thomas, he turns to Thomas and he says, Thomas, here I am. Poke and prod away. Put your finger in here. Put your hand in here. He knew what Thomas needed. He wasn't there when Thomas said that last Sunday. Jesus wasn't physically present, but of course he hears us, doesn't he? And he knows what we need in our life. And he turns to Thomas and he offers himself. Thomas, this is me. Stop doubting and believe. Isn't that amazing? To me, that seems like the most encouraging, affirming, and loving thing that Jesus could ever have done for Thomas. It doesn't seem like a harsh rebuke. Have you ever wondered why there are so many resurrection appearances? It tells us that Jesus spent 40 days appearing to his disciples and to other believers. 40 days just Resurrection Sunday alone to, to Mary, to the women, to Simon Peter, to the two uh, uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus, to the guys in the upper room, again tonight, to all of them, including Thomas. And over 40 days, numerous times, he appears to all of them. Have you ever wondered why? Would not one have been enough? Why did Jesus hang around for 40 days? And I think part of the answer is in Acts 1 verse 3, which says that um, after his suffering... Jesus showed himself giving many convincing proofs that he was alive. If you were here last Sunday, Angie Green sat and had a little interview here. She said, if Jesus hasn't risen from the grave, then this is all pointless. Let's go home. 
It's not worth it. We might as well have a social club instead because it means nothing. And I was standing in a queue to pay for some old man slippers yesterday in Marks and Spencer's in Isha, and there was a family in front of me, and the little boy, about I think probably about seven or eight years old, they'd obviously been talking about Easter, and he turns to his mum and he says, they told me that Jesus died but then rose again three days later, and her response to him was, well, son, it's a bit like, you know when you write a story at school and uh, the plot's not very good because you're getting better at writing stories and there are holes in the plot. Um, that was her explanation of Easter. She couldn't make sense of it. This is not a story with a hole in the plot. <laughs> this is not a badly written story. This is the resurrection of Jesus. And John has placed his gospel in the order and with the evidence that he has to prove to us that this is true. His resurrection validates his life. It validates everything that Jesus claimed to be. And it validates everything that he did that proved it. And his resurrection proves beyond any doubt the truth that Thomas was the first man ever in human history to proclaim. That's quite a title, isn't it? Let's ignore doubting Thomas. Thomas was the first man to ever say, my Lord and my God. Thomas realized that Jesus isn't just Lord. He's not just the master or the teacher or a person of significance. He is God. And that is a truth that changes our world. It changes our lives. It is a stumbling block to the world around us. It's a stumbling block to that young boy who I saw in a, in a queue yesterday. He can't get his head around it. Nor could his mum. And it's a stumbling block to the other religions of our world. I don't know if you know, but Muslims, for example, they believe in Jesus. They've got his teachings. They think he's a great prophet. I know a guy who runs a community mosque in Birmingham, and I had this conversation with him in a bar. Uh, this is how I discovered this, because I didn't realize. But they don't know what Jesus claimed. They don't know that Jesus claimed to be God. They don't know that's what we believe. And they don't know that 2,000 years ago, Thomas was the man who said, my Lord and my God, to Jesus' face. And you know what? Jesus didn't turn around and say, hold on a minute, Thomas, no, you got it wrong, hold on, back up. Actually, Jesus said, Thomas, you have believed because you've seen, but blessed are you, blessed am I, because we have believed without seeing. Jesus affirmed it. Jesus is both Lord and God. So why did Jesus spend 40 days appearing to his followers, 40 days of convincing them that it was really him, really him in a real body with real scars, really him alive. 40 days of making sure that not one of them, including Thomas, was missed out, that none of their doubts were allowed to remain, that everyone became, came to believe in him. And Jesus did that, I think, because he understood, as what John is trying to communicate to us, that by, it's by believing that we have life in his name. Jesus wanted his disciples and his followers to have life in all its fullness. And Jesus also knew that it was believing in him that would release them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's what would release them into mission and into ministry and into discovering all that God could do through their lives. That's why John writes his gospel. That's what he tells us. It's so that you and I can believe too. John's hope and prayer is that we'll read through this and that our doubts will turn into belief in Jesus, that we would have life 
in his name. Because we know that 2,000 years ago, there was a man who didn't buy into all the hype and belief of the people around him. He didn't lose his cool. He kept his head. He wanted to examine the hard evidence. He wanted to see Jesus in the flesh. He wanted to put his fingers in the holes and his hand in the side. He wanted to know for certain that this really was a resurrected and alive Jesus that he had followed for three years. Thank God for Thomas. He's a man after my heart. Um, and not his, his eyewitness account that we've got is one of the most amazing resurrection proofs. But the world doesn't know it. <laughs> that disappoints me hugely. My next question is, why does John single this encounter out? None of the other Gospels mention it, but John does. And I don't think it's just because this is a great proof of Jesus' resurrection, but I think it's because John understands that you and me, his readers, are a lot like Thomas. We all have doubts. Before we came to faith, we all doubted like he did. We all had a moment of choosing to believe. Maybe you've not had that moment yet. Maybe it'll be today. That'd be nice. Um, but we all have doubts. Doubts in life, doubts in our faith. I don't know what your doubts might be. Is it that you doubt that God loves you? Really loves you? Is it that you doubt that he can heal? Or do you just doubt that he might want to heal you? Is it that you doubt that you are made in his, him, in his image? That you are his workmanship, fearfully and wonderfully made, and that he looks at you and says, you're good. You are good. Do you doubt that you can overcome the sin that you struggle with? Do you doubt that you can be of any use to him? Do you doubt where you're going to spend eternity? Do you doubt that you have any kind of gifts or abilities that he could use? You might say to me, well, Toby, but, you know, I'm a believer. I've been a Christian for years, but actually I've encountered these doubts in real people who love Jesus with all their heart, but yet this stuff is still difficult. The question for us this morning then from this passage is that can we be honest as well, like Thomas? Can we be honest and say, yeah, actually, I have doubts. I struggle with this. And Jesus, I need help. You might say to me, well, Toby, what on earth is wrong with doubt? What's wrong with it? Nothing, nothing bad comes of it, and you're right. If I doubt I can do something, then what does that lead to? It leads to nothing. I don't do anything. That's what doubt does in our lives. Doubt leads to inaction. It leads to nothing. It leads to us never knowing what we can do. It leads to us never knowing what God can do through us. Doubt is a massive barrier to the expansion of God's kingdom. It holds us back. And God doesn't want you to be held back. He wants to release you to do the work that he's got for you to do. That, I think, is the unspoken reality of all of those resurrection appearances over 40 days, is that Jesus came back to, to prove to his disciples that he was really alive so that they could have life in his name, so that they could be released into mission and ministry and do all the good works that God has got prepared for them to do. But he came back for them because he believed in them. He believed in them. He believed that they could carry on his work. That's why he did it. He wanted to release them. There's um, a verse at the end of John 2, uh, which 
uses that same Greek word, the, the verb to believe, but instead it translates it, entrust himself to. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus has just described his death and resurrection in the terms of the temple being destroyed and built up again. And what the passage tells us is at the end of chapter 2, if you're looking for it, around verse 24, uh, is that that Jesus has been doing many miracles. And because of the miracles, the passage tells us that many people have come to believe in Jesus. But what it also tells us is that Jesus knows what's inside them. He knows their hearts. He knows their motives. He knows that actually what they're believing in are just the miracles. What they're believing in is a Jesus who was going to come and kick the Romans out and reestablish the nation of Israel. That was not Jesus' agenda. That was not what he had come to do. And so what the passage tells us is that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Jesus did not believe in them. It's the same word. But Jesus did entrust himself to Thomas. He did believe in Thomas. Jesus made himself completely vulnerable before Thomas. Thomas, here I am. Here are my wounds. Put your finger in here. Put your hand in here. I'm available for you. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus entrusted himself to Thomas And you know what? He entrusts himself to you and to me. And the reason I know that is because he's put his spirit, his Holy Spirit in our lives. He's made his home in us. The word became flesh and made his home among us. If that's not making himself vulnerable, because you should see the things that I do and the places that I go, then I don't know what is. He's made himself vulnerable and put himself in me. He believes in me. He believes in you. Have you ever had anyone really believe in you? It's an amazing thing. When someone believes in you, someone superior to you in some way believes in you, it is the most powerful and releasing thing. I, as I told you, I'm a pilot. I remember when I was learning to fly out in Michigan. And I remember the day that I went solo. It was the 9th of December, 1999, at 2.50 in the afternoon. I've got a logbook. That's why I remember. and I, remember, and I do remember it. It was this crisp, clear day in winter. Snow on the ground was often was the case in Michigan because the snow would come off the lakes. Very, very cold. They had to put um, kind of extra covers on the front of the engines, otherwise they would freeze in flight, and that's not good. Um, and we'd, the last couple of lessons I've been doing with my instructor, Clara, not Tom's daughter, um, much older than that, and uh, we had been practicing circuits and what we call touch and goes, where you land on the runway, you put the power up, and you take off again, and you fly around the airport, and you just keep doing it. It's great fun. And, uh, and we'd done about 45 minutes of this, and Clara said to me, it's, um, it's time, you know, we're finished. This time, when you land, come off, uh, taxi back to the ramp. Uh, and so I did. I thought, brilliant, that was a good flight. Um, and she says, don't, don't turn the engine off just yet. Um, she jumps out. And she says, right, Toby, off you go. Do it on your own. You can do this. I believe in you. That's actually what she said to me. You can do this. I believe in you. And then she shut the door and walked away. If there was ever a moment I needed peace, it was then, I tell you. <laughs> I'd never been alone in a flight deck before. Panic sets in. This sense of abandonment and being alone. You know, you've never been alone in this environment. And all of a sudden, you're alone. Um, and Rich Girk is here, I know. He knows what that feels like. Um, and, but you know what? There's two things that really kept me going that day. Well, A, God's peace with me. But it was because I was never really alone. I'm a believer and I'm filled with his Holy Spirit. And I've never been alone a day in my life since that happened. And secondly, Clara believed in me. Clara knows how to land aeroplanes. She'd been doing it for 50 years of her life. And if she thought I could do it, then I could do it. 
I had to remind myself that several times flying around the circuit. And you'll be pleased to know I didn't crash. I did land safely. I did get out of the airplane. It was a good day. I got signed off when I was flying solo from then on afterwards. But when someone believes in you, it's amazing. It's releasing. It's powerful. It, it can change our lives. And I want you to know that Jesus believes in you. Just imagine for a second what would have happened to Thomas if he had never overcome his doubt, if Jesus had never appeared to him. Let's imagine for a second that Thomas missed all the other appearances of Jesus in his resurrection body. He missed them all. He was left doubting. What would have happened to Thomas? Yes, he probably would have received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, but I'm assuming that he doesn't. I'm assuming that he never makes that step of believing. What would, he, what would he have done? Probably nothing. Would he have been the disciple that disappeared into an anonymity? Actually, well, he kind of does, doesn't he? Because we, he's not recorded anywhere else after this in the Gospels. But do you know what Thomas actually went on to do? Well, the church in India traces its heritage back to him. They believe that he landed on the Kerala coast in AD 52, where he witnessed some people there. They became known as the Kerala Christians, and then Christianity spread throughout the nation of India, an older Christian nation than ours. He spent about 18 years there, according to them, before he was killed for his faith, and he was martyred. Thank God for Thomas. He was released into mission and into ministry and into the good works that God had for him to do. And you know what? Jesus didn't have to come back just for Thomas. Have you ever thought about that one? Why did he come back just for Thomas? Thomas was going to see him again. Jesus appeared to the disciples numerous times. Thomas was going to see Jesus again. But isn't it amazing that Jesus goes out of his way and he turns up tonight just for Thomas because he loves Thomas because he wants him to believe in him and have life, because he wants Thomas to realize that he believes in him and release him into mission and into ministry and into turning the nation of India to follow Jesus. That is remarkable. The challenge for us in this story today, then, is we all, like Thomas, have doubts. Do we pretend that we don't, or are we honest and real about them? And I think that this morning, God wants to release people to be his people, to have life in all of its fullness, to do the things that he has prepared in advance for you to do. That's what Jesus wants for you. It's what he wants for me. So I just ask that, I'm going to read through some questions, that with the Holy Spirit, that you listen, allow him to maybe prompt in your life um, some of this stuff, and then I'll give you an opportunity to respond later. Do you have doubts that are holding you back from that fullness of life that Jesus wants for you? Do you doubt his love? Do you doubt his desire for you, his desire for your restoration and wholeness and healing? Do you doubt that you are good and made in his image or that you are gifted and useful to him? Do you have doubts that are keeping you on the sidelines keeping you from your calling? Are there things that you know God wants you to do, but actually you don't do them because you doubt or because you're fearful that you might let him down or let others down? Do you doubt that God could do anything through you? I've mentioned this phrase a few times tonight. Tonight? Tom, it's catching. 
Ephesians 2, verse 10. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. You're his workmanship. There is a purpose for your rebirth. There is a purpose for your creation. That purpose is to do good works. And he's got them ready for you in advance. They're waiting. They're lined up for the days ahead. That's why you are here. You may believe that you're a perfectly normal, functioning, believing, Bible-reading, praying Christian, but actually still not doing the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. God did not rescue you so you could sit on the sidelines and watch others work. And Jesus, much like he won't leave the one sheep who is lost, he'll leave the 99 behind and go and find it, Jesus will also come searching for you, maybe if you're on the sidelines, not in the race, not doing the works that he's called you to do. Because like Thomas, he doesn't want to leave you there. He wants you to serve him. He wants you to discover life in all of its fullness. He wants you to discover all that God can do through him if you believe. He's called you and gifted you and equipped you so that through doing the good works he's prepared for you, you can know that life in all its fullness. Have you even asked God lately, what is it you want me to do, God? What is it that you've prepared? You've got this, your word says you've prepared stuff for me. What is it? I'm going to give you a minute or so just to think about that, to ask God. I'll leave you with this phrase to ring in your mind. It's the words of a father who talks to Jesus about whether or not he can believe in the healing of his son. And he says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Just take a minute. Um, if the band want to come up while we're doing that for, to talk to God, to question that stuff with him. Father, we thank you for Thomas. Lord, we believe in you. Help us overcome our unbelief. Help us overcome the things that we doubt. Help us be released into all that you have planned for us, into life in all of its fullness. Lord, we want you to be glorified in us, to move in us and through us, for your glory and for your kingdom. We want to know what it is to have that life in its fullness and to be useful to you. Amen. Would you like to stand?